a shellfish allergy is one of those things that people accept is just, you know, that means you might have a contrast allergy. Is that true? No. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Welcome back to the Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Paul Williams. Hey, Matt. Hi, Paul. Uh, once again, I was not interrupted reading the intro. Yeah, it's uh, it felt sort of empty. Yeah, that, that means uh, Stuart is not here once again, but uh, he will be back in the future. Um, and, and I am excited to bring this episode to our listeners. This was set up through the American College of Physicians who recently held their national meeting, their fancy national meeting in San Diego. Uh, Paul, you, you attended, didn't you? I did, in fact, attend. And it was indeed fancy. Yes. And I am excited to introduce our guest tonight, Dr. Alan Dow, MD, MSHA. He is a professor of medicine from Virginia Commonwealth University, where he's the director of the Center for Interprofessional Education and Collaborative Care. He has been supported in his work with funding from the Josiah H. Macy Jr. Foundation as one of the inaugural class of the Macy Faculty Scholars, which is a highly competitive national program focused on developing the next generation of educational leaders. Dr. Dow is a practicing internist. He attended medical school at Washington University and completed residency in internal medicine and health administration at Virginia Commonwealth University. He was voted one of the top 15 healthcare leaders under 40 by Our Health Magazine in July 2013 and also received the prestigious Enrique Gertzen MD Faculty Teaching Award from Virginia Commonwealth University in 2010, which is the school's highest recognition for teaching. Thus, we are very glad to have him on the show, recapping the highlights, some of his highlights from ACP 2017. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Alan Dow. Nicely done. Hello, and welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Paul Williams. Hello, Matt. How are you? I'm doing well. And with us tonight is Dr. Alan Dow. He is a professor of medicine from Virginia Commonwealth University. Hi, Alan. How are you tonight? Great. Excited to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We, we are really excited to talk to you, me especially, because I, I didn't get to go to the fancy ACP conference in San Diego this year. So we, I, I do want you to tell me what I missed there. But first, uh, we'd like to get to know you a little bit. And the first question I like to ask these days is, if you had to give a one-liner, much like we would give on rounds uh, in the hospital, how, what, what would your one-liner be for yourself? Mm, probably a 42-year-old general internist who wanders into lots of different things and often spends time chasing after his children. I know what that's like. And uh, <laughs> you can, we can say he said taking, uh, chasing after your cats, Paul, just, be, just to make you feel included. Fantastic. Thank you for including. <laughs> but Alan, you have a cat as well. So uh, I imagine there's some cat chasing. Uh, it, he's, he's getting used to it. He just showed up three days ago, but he's, he's, he's raring to go. <laughs> Alan, I'd like to move on and start talking about 
uh, recap from ACP 2017. As I mentioned, I'm a little bit bitter that I didn't get to go to it this year, but uh, hopefully next year I will be attending. Paul was there, but for me, and for the benefit of the audience who, who may or may not have been there, can you tell us uh, a little bit about uh, what, was, what you thought was the most memorable presentation from the conference this year? I think the thing that stuck with me the most was that they tried a new format called Petra Kucha. And this is a, a, a format that comes from architecture, actually, because apparently when architects would present, uh, they would put up a single slide and talk about the single slide of whatever building they were talking about for half an hour. And so they developed this format in Japan where you get 20 slides and you get 20 seconds per slide. So basically in six and a half minutes, you're going through 20 slides and speaking pretty quickly about the main points you want to take about every slide. And that, that stuck with him because I think it really fits well with how we like to learn, the way that our attention spans are, are sort of maybe shorter now or, or at least one of things to sort of move on in the way that we work quickly in our clinical environments. And it was a lot of fun to, to see five people present in that format and, and see if they were going to you know, stay on track or lose their place or whatnot. They all did great, but it was, it was really fun to see that. That that is something I I just got done a book uh, recently. It's called Talk Like Ted. It's basically a gentleman who is kind of analyzing TED talks and saying why they're so why, what we can learn from them and how we can take those if in our teaching and our business presentations and use them. And that was one of the big things he was talking about. How people from the TED conference would have four, 40 slides, and instead of forty words per slide, which is usual, they would have like. 40 words over their entire presentation of like 20 slides or 30 slides and that the presentations are only 18 minutes long. So definitely something, uh, I guess, yeah, in medicine, like I'm doing right now, we probably talk too much. <laughs> well, I think we're, we're used to the, to the hour long continuing education presentation, but I mean, one of the great things about what you guys are doing with podcasting is that you're sort of saying, okay, let's make it as long as it needs to be and no longer and cover a bunch of topics during that, during that time. Yeah. And there's there's multiple people talking too, which I think is uh, kind of breaks it up a little bit, and and uh, that I think that helps. It is it is something that I'm very interested in, though this this kind of making your presentations because it actually helps your learners too. And uh, there's there's science to back that up. There's a bunch of books about these things. Can you speak? a little bit about um, why you think it's so important for people to go to these conferences like ACP? Yeah, you know, I, I think it, it gets you out of your, your style a little bit and you meet other people from other places and see how they're thinking about things or and doing things. And particularly the, the academic-oriented conferences, uh, I, I think there's a lot of opportunities for mentorship there that's, that's really key. If you're interested in becoming a, a better teacher or a better researcher, learning what other people are doing and, and trying to do in, in innovations is just incredibly important for enriching your practice and enriching their practice too. So it's not just to go there and just to uh, get away from the work and uh, go out and party for for a week. Or Paul, is that what what did you do? Yeah, it was mostly that. Um, <laughs> I didn't really see the inside of the convention center, but I hear it's lovely, and I, I look forward to potentially seeing it again in three years. Well, let's move on to some of the specifics of what of what occurred there, of some of the learning learning topics. And Alan, you gave a a recap presentation at the closing ceremony there. Yeah. I wanted to ask you some of the specifics about that. Um, what did what did you ha- the specifically on sleep? You talked a little bit about that and and how it affects 
how it affects our health. Yeah, this was actually one of the, the Pecha Kutra topics. And uh, the presenter, she did a, a great job talking about things that we think about related to uh, weight gain was her, was her focus and things that we don't think about um, very much as we're, as we're counseling patients around weight loss and weight gain. And she, she highlighted two big things. The first was the relationship between lack of sleep and weight gain and how there's a huge amount of undiagnosed sleep apnea and people that are gaining weight or other sort of sleep disorders. And so sleep hygiene should be part of, of any conversation with someone with even, even mild obesity to try to understand, okay, is, is sleep or lack of sleep part of what's causing the, the weight gain? And then the second thing was, was medications. And maybe for the highlight of the entire Petra Kutcher experience was that she had one slide where she listed all the medications associated with weight gain. And so she just in rapid fire over 20 seconds set about 40 different medications. So, so any sort of psychoactive medicine you can think of, you know, antidepressants, so on and so forth. Um, lots of other different kinds of medications that can cause weight gain. And so she, she listed this huge list. And I, I think it just highlighted the fact that, um, you know, if you have a, a medication that maybe can, causes a pound or two of weight gain a year, but the person's on it for 10 years, all of a sudden now you've got 20 pounds of weight gain. And then we need to be thinking as, as general internists very carefully about what those longer term effects of medicines can be. I know a lot of people I talked to were awfully excited about the points made about iron supplementation and anemia. Can you, can you speak a little bit about that? It sounds like our patients have been more accurate about the dosing than we have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this was great. And this was maybe the, the most uh, challenging, the conventional wisdom thing I, I learned. So there's been a, an article in blood and, and sort of now been, been brought forth that, that there's this uh, protein called hepcidin that is involved in iron absorption. And when you take oral iron, the hepcidin kicks in to block iron absorption, so you're not absorbing too much iron. And if we give iron three times a day, like we, we tend to, to prescribe, that really ramps up our hepcidin levels, and we don't absorb, or patients don't absorb much of that iron that they're taking. So what this uh, uh, science is now recommending, and what the, the speaker recommended in a couple of different places, was that really we should be taking prescribing iron supplementation as an every other day supplement. Uh, and one of the things that he said is that you can you can give an iron pill and then check an iron level an hour later and see if it if it shoots up and that means the patient's absorbing it. And by doing that kind of study you can recognize that okay, probably every other day dosing is enough. We don't need to be pushing iron three times a day. Yeah, I saw that in the presentation. Is there a practical role for the iron challenge or is that just more proof of theory? Well, I think there are the patients that don't absorb iron who you know, maybe have celiac disease or something like that. And so if you have someone who's, who's iron deficient and, and hasn't uh, come up with what you think is adequate supplementation, then it's probably worth digging a little bit deeper. Uh, so, I, so I do think there may be a role in, in the right patient. You know, it would be a tricky thing, I think, to, to do from a, um, a clinical practice point of view, but you, you might have an office where you could pull that off. So you would, you would see them in the office and, and, uh, review their lab, say, oh, hey, your iron didn't come up. You're on supplementation. Have them take a pill in the office and send them to the lab and, and see if it comes up. And if, if it doesn't come up in an hour on just the normal iron panel, then th then that's suggestive. Is is that kind of what they were telling people to do? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you, and you want them to actually fast from their iron for about a week beforehand so that you don't end up with this hepcidin effect of, of not absorbing the iron even though you're giving it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Spectacular. What what was said about antibiotic resistance? Uh, I imagine a lot of doom and gloom. Can you can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, it was terrifying. Uh, you know, we think about these 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 cases of uh, you know collision resistance, so on, so on, uh, bugs. And the the speaker made the point that um, by the year 2050, if you follow current trends and what's in the antibiotic pipeline, that there'll be 10 million cases of of significant antibiotic resistance uh, by 2050. And it, it, he he made the point by presenting some of the original papers around uh, you know methicillin resistant staph aureus and some of the other antibiotic resistance that was published in the literature in the you know 1950s and then you know going forward in in history and how you know the the point that we are now with with these multi drug resistant bugs and how they become resistant to pretty much everything is that if you follow that trajectory we're we're going to be uh, really at the end of our rope with a lot of of these uh, microbes in, in 2050 unless we we develop new types of therapy. And I think that the ACP has some great resources. Uh, one of them came out last year. The It was it was for the upper respiratory infections, just sort of telling, uh, it kind of laid them out in a nice table, which I use all the time in teaching clinic for residents. And I can link to this article in the show notes. And it basically just shows all the upper respiratory infections that we commonly see people get. They go to urgent care centers and they get prescribe these antibiotics and uh really there's not there's not many reasons to prescribe antibiotics for upper respiratory infections i think a lot of people know that but i i keep that handy and i can show that to patients sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but i think at least the media is helping us a little bit in this regard by kind of spreading this antibiotic resistance thing so i've had better luck in the past year or two than i had previous years trying to convince patients when they don't need antibiotics there was a great uh, couple of slides that I saw in one of the presentations, and I didn't mention this in my wrap-up, but it was talking about all the side effects of quinolones that are continuing to emerge, You know, not just the tendon ruptures, but the neuropathies and other problems people get from, from, from quinolones and how those are, from a, a potential risk point of view, sort of falling into a second-tier antibiotic, which is really the first time I've heard someone sort of say, okay, use, use a macrolide instead or use a moxicillin instead because the, the quinolones have, have so much risk with them. Yeah, and I think the black box warning went on those last May or June, some somewhere around then, and I, I can put the link in there into the show notes as well for the audience, but the the black box warning says for uncomplicated cystitis or upper respiratory infections, they they no longer recommend using those. And I I counsel residents. I think you're probably open to lawsuits if you if you someone comes in with just an uncomplicated cystitis and you ha, don't have a good reason to be using quinolones, and then they get a tendon rupture or they get this permanent neuropathy, potentially permanent neuropathy. You might you might be in trouble there. So it is that that's another thing too. That's a, that's a great point. I can see the late night lawyer ads right now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, what did what did the ACP teach you about cancer risk, and and how does this deal deal with fasting, or how does fasting tie into that? Yes, this is an, an interesting thread that I've been I've been following the literature and and then heard a little bit more about, and I'm not I'm not going to go into great detail, frankly, because I'm not the expert, but the the concept is fascinating. More and more, it's been shown that that exercise is not just good for cardiovascular disease, but also seems to decrease our our cancer risk. And part of, of, of that, that thinking about, about exercise is that you know, you're doing something metabolically that's, that's good for your body. So the, the presenter at ACP was talking about fasting and showed some data around fasting. What's not clear is what 
counts as fasting? Is it just for a day or for two days, or is it something where you go on a, on a 30 day fast? And if you're doing a, a juice cleanse, does that count as fasting? And I don't, I don't think we know the answer to that, but it does appear that people that, that have fasting as a part of their life have, have decreased cancer risk. And I'll, I'll say one of the things that we, we seems to be true is that people that undergo fasting, they pass on the benefits of that fasting to their offspring. It has to do with deacetylation of histones and, and whatnot. And so the people that are were under starvation times in, in St. Petersburg uh, during the Second World War, they passed on some of that cardiovascular benefit from the fasting onto several generations of their offspring. And so it, it, it's, it's possible that this cancer risk may also decrease to your offspring as well. And so it, I think it's a, an interesting concept. I don't know where it's going to end up and how much more we need to learn about it, but I think it's the kind of thing that, that made me perk up my ears and say, okay, there's, there's something interesting here that we're, we, I need to be open to learning more about because I, I certainly have never thought about fasting as a, as a health practice for myself. And I, I listened to the, the Tim Ferriss podcast. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, F-E-R-R-I-S-S. And he is, he's very into fasting and he often will have on researchers. There's one specifically, his name is Dom D'Agostino, and I can link to this episode in the show notes as well. And that was like a two-hour conversation. They're mostly talking about the ketogenic diet. And the, the ketogenic diet, I guess uh, this researcher was talking about how when you go into ketosis, the cancer cells want glucose. So if you're running on ketones as fuel... The, this this researcher was a he. This has not been proven yet in in trials. I just thought it was very thought provoking. He basically said if you, he would recommend that people if they're getting chemo they should fast for for like seventy two hours or so before chemo because it might enhance the potency of the chemo because the cancer cells have been starved for three days and then you hit them with this toxic medication. I don't. It might also enhance the acute kidney injury, but yeah, that's okay. Absolutely. And, uh, but, but he was also just talking about for patient, for people at risk for cancer, just kind of intermittent fasting might kill some precancerous cells. I have no idea if any of that is borne out. I just, I, I saw that in your presentation and I had heard about this and I, I thought that was very, very interesting. So I am, uh, I also have a lot of cancer in my family, so I'm, I'm highly, um, interested in this area as well. Yeah, well, I think it'll be interesting to see what what data comes forward as we as we get bigger data sets and look at maybe some of the troubled regions of the world and, and what we can learn from those populations and and their long term health risks. I do think we still have certainly periods of starvation in, in places of the world. And Paul, what were you? Oh, I was going to say, just speaking of self interest, um, as someone who's been on omeprazole for years, I wanted to ask about sort of the the next point that we we have brought up to discuss about the the proper duration of of proton pump inhibitor therapy. Yeah, so so this was this was sort of reassuring for for me to hear. We we hear all these bad things about about PPIs causing increased C diff and increased pneumonia and maybe osteoporosis and so on and so forth. Um, all of which are are very small risks. And this was this was underscored in the presentation again that the the risk of all those things are are very small when you look across a, an entire population and, and think about an individual. Um, but what the presenter did say is that. Uh, for the most part, you can stop PPI therapy after two months. Most people that have reflux disease, their symptoms will um, will um, go away, and if you stop the therapy, they'll often feel better. 
Um, and then if they have recurrence, then you should do more evaluation with an EGD and, and see, see what else could be going on. Um, the one exceptions or two exceptions to that was that if they have um, evidence of erosive esophageal disease, you know, ulcer or something like that, then you should continue them longer on therapy. Or if they have Barrett's esophagus, then they need longer PPI therapy. But it, you know, we have some people that we start PPIs on and then you sort of are stuck with them and you're like, okay, when do we stop? And I think that that guideline of saying, okay, well, after two months, let's just stop them and see how the patient does is a, is a useful thing in clinical practice. Was there any talk about using other therapies to wean people off PPIs. I, I, I've been taught that there's, and, and again, I don't know if this is a true thing or not, but that there's like a rebound in acid production when you stop a PPI. So did, did the speaker talk about bridging them with anything, Tums or Zantac or something? I can't remember for, for sure. He did talk about rebound acid production. And I think that's actually maybe a bigger thing with H2 blockers than PPIs, if I'm remembering correctly, but I, I could be wrong about that. And how about screening screening colonoscopies? These are these can be tough to get. Uh, for a lot of patients, aren't willing to accept the fact that they should have some sort of colon cancer screening. It's mostly be mostly related to the prep that re- that is required for a screening colonoscopy. And uh, were were there any tips you got there on how to get around this? Yeah, well, there's there's pretty much six ways that we can now screen for colon cancer, which is maybe four more than than back when I was a resident. So there's there's screen colonoscopy and then there's the annual fecal occult blood testing. Um, but he also talked about the annual fecal immunochemical testing, which is not super new, but but newish. And then there's fecal immunochemical testing with, with DNA sequencing in it that can be done less frequently than the, the fecal immunochemical testing. There's actually a, a blood test called SEPS9, which is pretty brand new, and then virtual colonoscopy. And it's it's not really clear of these six options which is superior to the others. We we just don't have the the data around that. But they all have some evidence supporting their ability to to detect cancers um, or or precancerous lesions earlier in the process. And so the the thing that I took from it is that you've got this menu of of things that are now available. It's going to depend on your your practice setting and on insurance what's the best to do. But for example, I do a lot of primary care in a, in a free clinic. And it's very difficult for us to get screening colonoscopy because it's hard to get into the gastrointestinal specialist for, for just a screening colonoscopy unless you have a, 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 you know, an indication that, that really um, pushes you to it. But I may be able to get something that's more expensive uh, actually done through charity care through one of our local hospitals for our patients. And so it's interesting to sort of have those, those six different things in your toolbox and figure out, okay, in your context, and for um, for depending on what your patient's preferences are and what their insurances are, how you can triangulate that decision to provide them something that that may be amenable. I mean, you can imagine if you could do a a DNA blood test every every three years, then um, then that might be something that patients would find a lot more agreeable than colonoscopy. Um, he made the the other point that far and away our biggest problem with colon cancer screening is that people don't get screened, and that. You know, we've got this huge gap between people that should get screened and people that don't. And that's that's the biggest driver of colon cancer mortality. Yeah, it's exciting to have sort of this menu of options. You know, it's, I, I still feel like our residents kind of give up prematurely. It's that, well, patients declining colonoscopy, so I guess we won't be screening for colon cancer now. Like, I just feel like we don't, we're still not thinking about all these other possible ways to actually look for it. So it's nice they're coming to the forefront. Maybe your clinical decision uh, uh, infographics can help us with that if we could sort of say, you know, here's the different things you can do and, and really get people thinking about it. Right. Absolutely.
Alan, I just wanted to go back because uh, you said it quickly there. Was it SEPS9, SEPS9? Am I getting that right? I think it's SEPT9. And I don't actually remember whether it's SEPT9 or, or SEPT9, how it's actually pronounced. Okay. Um, but he did show some data around it that showed the, the, uh, the sensitivity and specificity. Okay, I'll plug that into Google, and I will put that in the show notes for the listeners. Uh, we'll, we'll, I'll figure, I'll, I'll, I'll get the spelling right. And uh, can you talk about? So this is a this is one of the things we were kind of talking about earlier. So uh, shellfish allergy is one of those things that people accept is just you know that means you might have a contrast allergy. Is that true? No. <laughs> <laughs> Case Next closed. Question. No, no follow-up questions. <laughs> um, that, that was basically my response when he said it in his presentation. I, I, I said, really? And then someone got up in the Q&A afterwards and said, did you really mean to say that? And he said, he said yes, there is no known association. It's one of these myths that, that's permeated in medical practice and, and is not true. That's just beautiful. You got to love it. I, uh, I, like being I th- allergic to iodine, you can't be allergic to a fundamental element that you actually need to live. So it's... You just, it's not a, it's not a thing. This, I, I think it was this week. I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of a hospital wards block at Cashlack, So I'm a little bit delirious, but there was, uh, in, in the daily new England journal watch email, there was just a study about IV contrast, IV contrast, and, and really might not actually cause contrast induced nephropathy was the headline. And they basically said for patients with a creatinine under four and the newer, the newer generation, IV contrast, it didn't really seem very risky to be giving contrast, but I'm not sure I'm just going to be doing CAT scans on everyone with like CKD three and four, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe there's more, something there. We're all afraid of contrast for no reason. I can chase down all those cats now. That's really exciting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I kind of hope it's, I hope that that is uh, true, that there's no, no risk of contrast-induced nephropathy. That would be amazing. It, it, that would make things a lot easier for many patients and, and for clinicians, because I care about myself too. Uh, okay. So, Alan, we're get, getting to the end of our questions here, and uh, I think I'm digging a deeper hole for myself saying stupid things. So uh, what are the three, your three favorite practice changing facts that you learned from ACP and you can just recap them for the audience if, uh, if we've already brought them up. Yeah. So I think, uh, probably the, the prescribing iron every other day would be the, the first thing that, that just was something for me that was, was very, um, yeah, practice changing to hear. Um, I think the lack of a link between, uh, shellfish and, and contrast allergies, uh, probably another, another thing. Uh, and probably the the third thing that we in one that we haven't mentioned is what we should be doing about pre-diabetic patients and and slowing their uh, progression to diabetes and and to sequela of diabetes. Um, I went to a great presentation that that said you know weight loss benefits all pre-diabetic patients, and so we should certainly focus on that and some of the stuff that we we mentioned before. But that for people under sixty and people that are high risk, metformin is also probably um, a reasonable option to to uh, prevent the development of diabetes-related complications. And it was fascinating to me that there was no added benefit between doing both things. And so that was that was striking to me that it's either it's either metformin or weight loss. And so, do you want your pill, or do you want to do you want to you know exercise and, and eat better? 
And, and so, you know, I think as I think about my practice, I probably would encourage people to lose weight and try that for, you know, three to six months, try to get them in a diabetes prevention program. But then if I didn't see that, that needle really moving on the scale, I probably would, would prescribe the metformin. Uh, it's important that it's, it's not actually a lot of weight people need to lose. Three, four, five pounds can make a huge difference in, in cardiovascular outcomes. Um, but it does need to be going in the right direction and not the wrong direction. So mechanistically, do they have a sense of why it's not synergistic? It just it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, no, I, I was surprised by that, but that's evidently what the data shows. And so uh, that, it was interesting to sort of see. That. I, I would guess that they may be working through a similar mechanism, uh, but you know, I, he, he didn't comment on that. Okay. Well, Alan, I I want to let you go because we've taken a lot of your time. Do you have some take-home points other than what we just discussed uh, that you that you wanted to to give to our listeners, or do you have anything you'd like to plug? One of the things that I really appreciate about about this conference and about all conferences is seeing the community of people that are there and seeing people working together towards all of our common goals of of helping our patients and and helping each other take better care of our patients. So that was that was great to see. There were a couple of of striking examples. There's a, an opiate support system for clinicians called the Providers Clinical Support System for Opiate Therapies that can actually get you a coach to help you with how to prescribe opiates to your patients. And so this is part of the, the efforts to combat the, combat the opiate epidemic. So it was great to, to hear about things like that. And we've been doing some work on that at, at VCU. And so we're, we're getting ready to launch actually some web-based education around safe opiate prescribing. So oh, hopefully by the time that this uh, this podcast airs, we'll have that online. So it, it it'll be a, a safe opiate prescribing uh, course through VCU that we'll we'll be trying to provide some practical education about how to better prescribe opiates to your patients. And who will that be open to? Anybody? Yeah, it's going to be a, a CE course, but but designed with the idea of starting with where people's practices and saying, okay, here's some some information or some recommendations about how, how, how to think about doing this. What does this mean for your practice? So we're really trying to, to drive it into an individual's type of practice that they do. Oh, that's fantastic. And will that will that comment on naloxone prescribing for patients on certain certain doses of opiates and like how to counsel family members? Because I'm not really prescribing naloxone. I'm not using a lot of opiates, first of all, but I, I have not been prescribing naloxone mostly because I'm not really sure how how to counsel patients on it right now. So I definitely need to brush up on that. Yeah, and so that, that is definitely covered in there. And, you know, it's a, it's a certain naloxone, uh, certain opiate equivalent dose that you prescribe the naloxone for, but but also if they're on benzodiazepines or have a history of overdose, um, you want to provide the, the naloxone as well. So, so there's, there's a couple of different criteria to be thinking about as you're prescribing opiates to patients. Well, Alan... Thank, thank you so much, and uh, this this has been great. Any questions or concerns for us before we let you go? No, no, it's great great to talk to you guys, and, and you know, I'm, I'm a fan now that I've listened to a few episodes. You guys are doing great stuff. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It sounds like it sounds like we have a lot of similar interests with the medical education, and uh, and and then some of those the same interests in books and all that stuff. So. Uh, I will. I will look out for you at future conferences. I would. I would be happy to buy you a beer next time I can run into you somewhere. Yeah. 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 Thanks, Alan. Really helpful. Thank you for your time. Okay. Take care, guys. All right. Bye. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders. 
bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, apps, or websites mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our monthly newsletter summarizing <clears throat> summarizing the key tools, tips, and tricks for your practice at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, or send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can re- recommend a future topic for the show or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And finally, follow us on Facebook, Instagram. Yes, Paul, we have an Instagram and Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. And I remain Paul Williams. And Stuart will be back in the future. Good night. <laughs>